Good evening. You're all very welcome, especially if you're joining us this evening as a, a visitor or, or a guest of someone who comes here. We hope you've really been encouraged so far and that you enjoy your time with us this evening. As Danny says, we're continuing our series in the second letter of Peter. And if you have a Bible with you, uh, if you want to open it up at Second Peter chapter 2, and we're going to come to that chapter in, in just a moment, but let's get our Bibles open there. I have to confess, I am a real fan of the novels of John le Carre. Um, I just really enjoy them. Uh, and probably one of his favorite novels, or one of his most famous novels, I suppose, is the novel Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, and some of you may have seen the, the film adaption a few years ago. Uh, and, and the whole plot of that novel revolves around the idea that at the very heart of the intelligence service, amongst a high level of group of, of long-serving members, one of them is a traitor. One of them has been working for their own agenda all along. And as unfathomable as it seems, all of these men who all appear loyal, in fact, one of them is a traitor. And unmasking that traitor is the plot of that book. And, and that idea of a saboteur within the ranks, of, of someone among you betraying you, is always used to great dramatic effect in films and in books and, and in popular media. But actually, that's not too dissimilar from the situation that Peter is addressing right here in the churches that he is writing to with this short little letter. Second Peter is often compared to the even shorter letter of Jude, um, and Peter uses a lot of material from Jude in his letter and expands on it. But the situation that Jude is writing to is one where people have come into the church from the outside and started to cause problems. That's not the situation here. The situation Peter is addressing is one where the people have been among them from the start. Here, if you like, the enemy is already within the gates. And we have this idea of nearly fifth columnists, that idea from, from the Spanish Civil War where there were four columns of troops marching on Madrid and a fifth column of sympathizers was going to rise up inside the city. Well, that's exactly what's happening here in these churches that Peter is writing to. There are people within it who have been there for a long time who are working against the, the believers there. And so Peter has written this letter, and, and we've come over the last couple of weeks. David took us through chapter 1. And chapter 1 is broadly a pretty positive encouragement to the listeners. And the, the core of chapter 1 for me is, is in that exhortation that Peter gives, starting at verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter is being in that first chapter pretty positive, pretty encouraging. He's trying to stir up the believers to keep moving, to keep moving forwards in their Christian lives. And he also, in that chapter, as we thought, defends himself and defends some of the other apostles against some of the accusations that these false teachers have been making. But now as he moves into chapter 2, he, he comes off the back foot and onto the front foot. He comes onto the attack, and he really starts now to call out these false teachers very directly. 
and he moves into it really smoothly. For at the end of chapter one, he's talked about New Testament teachers, and then he talks about Old Testament prophets. And as we open chapter two, then he talks about Old Testament false prophets and New Testament false teachers. So that's his movement into it. And so in chapter two now, Peter, as we're going to read, is really tackling them head on. He starts to discuss the reality. These people are here among you. Their, their sphere, their theater of operation, if you like, and some of the damage that they are doing. And he has this long sentence in the middle of it regarding the certainty that these false teachers are going to face judgment. And, and then in the closing half, the back half of the chapter again, he comes back to talking more about the character of these people and the way that they work, and again, their ultimate fate. And that discussion about their ultimate fate and the certainty of their judgment is tied uh, very closely to their own warped doctrinal error that they were using, those false teachers were using to justify their behavior. And Peter tackles that in chapter 3, and Ollie's going to take us through that next week. So I'm not wanting to, to poach too much from him, but essentially the main issue with these false teachers is that they were denying that Jesus was coming again. They were denying that the Lord was going to come back, and they were denying that there was going to be any sort of a judgment made on people's lives, on your life, or my life, or their lives. And so that, that was their, their theological underpinning. But tonight, as we come away from this, I want us to understand Peter's point here, which is that these people are going to face judgment. But I also want us, each of us, to have a pretty clear understanding in our heads about how these false teachers operated, how they worked, what, what motivated them, what they looked like, and, and in so doing, in so being able to see them, be able to know how that we can guard against them in our own fellowship here and elsewhere. So with that preamble, let's come to chapter 2, and let's read it together. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, 
But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Pray God will bless his word to us and give us clarity as we look at it this evening together. First of all, we have to think about Peter's main thought here, which is the certainty of the coming judgment on these false teachers. He could not be more clear about it in this chapter. He opens with it in verse 1, doesn't he? That's nearly his first point about them, bringing destructive heresies, but in that, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And he takes up that theme, and he carries that theme through this whole passage. These false teachers who are doing so much damage among you, though it seems like they're getting away with it, and though they proclaim so confidently that they're going to get away with it, they are inevitably facing judgment. They are facing destruction. And that really from Peter is his response to an unheard in the letter assertion by these false teachers that the second coming of Jesus is not going to happen. And that's, that's an offense to Peter. If we look back in, in Acts, when we read in Acts 10, one of Peter's first and, and really famous sermons that's recorded for us, Peter stands up and in the middle of that sermon he says, he... God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. That's what Peter said, but what the false teachers are saying is, he's not coming. He's not coming back. There's no judgment coming. No one's ever going to look at your life and say, you behaved as you should have or you behaved as you didn't. There's no assessment going to be made. Jesus isn't coming back. 
Because this letter is written at a, a transition point in the church. The, the first generation of people, Peter and the apostles and that first generation of Christians are all dead or dying. Peter is writing this letter knowing he is dying. These are, these are really his dying declaration, if you like. And so there's a, tran- a generational shift happening here. And the false teachers seeing that happening are saying to the congregation, these guys spent their whole lives waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Don't see him. It's not going to happen. And Peter's thundering reply in this letter is, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Peter is contesting for the soul and for the faith of this second generation. And at the point of any generational transition in the faith, there comes a point when we, as that next generation, need to affirm for ourselves the truth of the gospel in the face, just like here, of a culture that often says, well, that's what your parents believed. That's what your grandparents believed. That was fine for them, but it doesn't really hold up, does it? doesn't really hold up. There needs to come a point with a generational transition where the new generation takes hold of the truth of the gospel. And that's what Peter is contending for here. And he's saying to the listeners, this is the train that these guys are driving. This is where it's going. It may, it may not seem like it. They may not say that's where they're going, but they are heading for judgment. And so you can get on the train with them if you want, but don't be in any doubt about where it's headed. Don't mistake, he says, don't mistake God's timetable for God's disinterest. Their destruction is not asleep. And in the midst of that, there is this little positive encouragement for us. He says, God knows how to righteous rescue the righteous from a world that seems overwhelmingly in the majority against them. Look at Noah or look at Lot. People surrounded by a world that thought what they believed was crazy. And God knows how to rescue the righteous. And equally, he will hold the wicked to account. And so take comfort as you walk in this way, in this Christian life. So that is the fate that Peter is making clear that these false teachers face. I want us to think now a little bit about the false teachers themselves. What, what, what do we learn about them from this chapter? What can we see about them? And there's six things about them that I think we should pay attention to, and they fall into pairs actually quite nicely. The first thing is that we can see Peter says they have eyes full of adultery and hearts trained in greed. Their main feeling of these people is a moral feeling. It's, Peter says they've denied the master who bought them. It's by their behavior that they deny him. Jesus was the master of their lives, and yet they continued to live their lives how they wanted to. They said, don't care about that. That's, that's written in a context where people could live as slaves and, and do jobs that you or I do and live lives the way you or I would consider very normal things, but we would be owned by a master, and the master could sell us or another master could buy us. And Peter's saying, you know, we were bought by our master, Jesus. 
He sets the tone now. But by their behavior, these false teachers deny him. They continue to live lives marked by sensuality, as Peter's word, by sin. And so they, they deny their master, Jesus. Their failure is moral. And, and that failure is, is greed and it is adultery. We're told, shockingly, aren't we, that they are sitting there in the fellowship meal with eyes, eyes of adultery. So th- this meal would have been something that the early church did, similar to our communion, but, but gathering around a full meal and sharing not just in remembering Jesus, but also in sharing in fellowship. It was a wonderful time for that early church. And what Peter says is they are sitting there in your midst at that meal, reveling in how they're deceiving you and looking at the woman there as nothing more than sexual objects. Their eyes are filled with adultery. That's a, he's, he's playing on a proverb from the time that said they don't have pupils in their eyes, they have prostitutes. Their eyes are filled with adultery. That's what marks them. And then their hearts are trained in greed. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? We train for something we care about. If you're one of the crazy people who run marathons, you train for a marathon because you want to get a really good time. If you're someone who lifts weights, you train. If you, if you want to, to, to enjoy the benefits of, of a healthy body, you will train it. If you want to pursue a career in something or, or become a, a joiner or a tradesman, you train to that aim. So you train for something that you care about. And what we see here is people, Peter says they, that greed is so central to their life, they have trained their hearts in it. They have trained themselves towards greed. And greed is something that in the Western world especially we understand very well. He says, to this end, they're sitting there and they exploit you with their words. They exploit you with what they're saying. Every interaction they have with you, the end is for their own greedy gain. And that explains this example that Peter uses of Balaam, who is a a prophet from the Old Testament. And he was offered money. He was offered a deal, essentially. We'll give you money if you go and curse these people for us. And we know from the Old Testament account of that, and we know from the way God rebuked him, and we know from Peter's interpretation of it here that in Balaam's heart, he found that deal really appealing. He liked the idea of that. In fact, we're told he loved gain from doing wrong. And that's the heart of these false teachers. They've trained it in greed. They love it. They love being able to exploit you, Peter says. They revel in it while they're sitting there with you. And you see, the doctrine or the idea that there's not going to be any second coming, there's not going to be any judgment made on your life, well, it leads to that sort of behavior, doesn't it? What, what links your Instagram comment feed, wine and cheese parties at number 10, the book, The Lord of the Flies, Every one of those are things that people do when they think they're not going to be held accountable. Some of the things people write online behind a username because they think it's never going to be traced back to them. They write terrible things that they would never say in real life because they don't think they'll ever be held accountable for it. People flouting the regulations of the pandemic because ultimately they felt they were never going to be held accountable. 
And so that idea that there is no accountability in our lives leads to eyes filled with adultery and hearts filled with greed. But it's equally possible, actually, that the lifestyle for these people was the first thing. I remember Danny challenging us not that long ago about moral failing in Christians preceding theological revision. People succumb to temptation, and then they go out and find a a theology. They go out and find a doctrine that justifies it, that makes it okay. And I suspect, actually, that's what happens here in 2 Peter The adultery and the greed came first, and they found a way to justify it later. What an application there is here for leaders in the church and for those of us who teach especially, to examine our hearts. None of us are above these things creeping in to our hearts. Greed doesn't necessarily have to just be for money. It can be for praise and adulation. It could be for power, for prestige. And so we must examine our hearts, make sure that we never let a foothold in for those features that marked these false teachers, eyes filled with adultery and hearts trained in greed. So also, we find that Peter says these people promise freedom and despise authority. They promise freedom. That's the fundamental message. Do what you want. Do what you want. No restrictions. Live your life however you want. Sleep with who you want. Eat what you want. Do what you want. What an appealing message that is. Freedom always sounds good, doesn't it? No shackles on you now. No restrictions on your life. No accountability at the end of it. No one's ever going to come back and say, how did you live with the life that I gave you? Free from the law, someone paraphrases, free from the law, oh happy condition, now I am free to live in perdition. But Peter makes clear that these people themselves have no freedom. Far from being free, they are enslaved to sin, corruption. They're they're, they're actually going around being driven by their animal instincts. It's such a vivid picture he paints. They're going around like beasts. The way an animal moves from needing to eat to needing to sleep to needing to eat to needing to reproduce to needing to sleep. Just these animal instincts. That's what these people are being driven by. They're enslaved to sin. Peter says whatever overcomes a man, that's what he's enslaved to. So that this freedom that they're proclaiming, they're not experiencing it themselves. But that message is what they're reeling people in with. Peter says, many will follow them in their sensuality. They entice people by the sensual passions of the flesh. What an appealing message. Do what you want. And the damage done is untold. Peter says that because of this, because of them, the way of truth is going to be blasphemed, is going to be spoken badly of. And sadly, that continues. There was a generation of Americans, unbelieving Americans, for whom the church was defined by the money and the sexual scandals of the televangelists. The damage that was done by people who succumbed to the sensual passions of the flesh. So they promise this freedom, but in actual fact, they themselves are enslaved to sin. 
And Peter tells us too, they despise authority. They despise authority. We see that first in that they, they deny the master who bought them. They don't want to yield to Jesus as Lord. They don't want to let him have any say in how they live their lives. They despise that idea that he might have authority over their life. We see that they despise authority as well when Peter gives us this, this unusual verse about them slandering the glorious ones. Let's take a moment just to read that. That's in verse 10 again. They, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, those two verses are subject to some debate. There are at least four possible interpretations of that. But all of them actually, without boring you with all four, have the same fundamental issue, and that is that these false teachers assume a position of authority and judgment over something that they have no right to. They, they reject the proper order of things. They reject the proper order of authority, and in fact, they, they, they despise it by their actions. I would feel that the glorious ones that Peter refers to are angels, holy angels, uh, and that essentially what he's saying is these holy angels who often in that culture would have been associated with the Jewish law and the administration of the Jewish law and probably the false teachers have taken some of Paul's writings about the law uh, and that we are no longer subject to the law and warped them and spoken disparagingly of these angels. And so they, they, they blaspheme these glorious ones. They, they don't even tremble at the thought of it, but they, they cast dispersion. They, they speak badly of these angels. But the angels, even though they're greater in might and power, don't pronounce a judgment against the false teachers. They leave that before the Lord. Now, there are other possible interpretations of that, and we can chat them through later. But the fundamental issue is the same. These false teachers reject the proper order. They despise authority. So they have eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed. They promise freedom that they can't offer, and they despise authority. And the application of those words of Peter to your life are really clear. Peter's saying this, everyone has an authority. Everyone is under some sort of an authority. You're either under the authority of sin or the authority of a savior. And the Lord Jesus says, my yoke, my reins are easy and my burden is light. The only true freedom for a person actually is to yield to the master, the Lord Jesus. Because we're told in the New Testament, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Only by submitting to our Master, the Lord Jesus, can a human being truly experience freedom. I wonder what your authority is this evening. I wonder as you sit here, perhaps thinking that you're, you're free to live your life as you want. A Roman philosopher around the time this was written said, to be slave to yourself is the worst master of all. I wonder what your authority is in your life. They promise freedom. They despise authority. And then we see, he says, they make loud boasts 
and they entice unsteady souls. They make these loud broasts. They make these, these um, pompous proclamations would be the other way to read that. So they, they have these great speeches. They have these really confident declarations that they're making. They have these fantastic words that they can stand up and deliver. But actually, Peter says, they're waterless springs. That idea of, of finding an oasis in the desert and thinking after a long time of walking through the heat and the dryness, and there's the spring, and you're about to fall on it, only to find it's dry, it's barren. There's nothing in it. That picture of them as a mist being driven by the wind. And if you've ever stood when the fog is blowing past you, it has such a strange feeling. It just passes by you. There's no substance to it. And that's how Peter identifies these people's talk. They make these loud boasts. They make these confident proclamations. But in reality, they're a dry spring. I remember listening to a sermon once from someone who advocated the prosperity gospel, and it all sounded very good, and he was talking about being a person of excellence. And as far as I could tell, it was about looking after yourself and taking pride in your appearance, and it all sounded really good. But the reality is that sort of teaching is an, a mist driven before a storm. None of us will ever not face sickness. None of us will ever not face the loss of a spouse or a loved one. None of us will ever not face hard times. And in those moments, those proud words, those confident boasts, well, suddenly they become a dry spring. I thought recently of a man called Robert Schuller. Some of you may be familiar with Robert Schuller. He was a young man who went to Westminster Theological Seminary, a very conservative and, and very respectable college for the development of people to go into Christian ministry. Um, and he graduated, and then he started a drive-in church, and then he, he started a TV program. It's called The Hour of Power. But before long, Robert was starting to make pronouncements like, if you can dream it, you can do it, and avoiding any discussion of sin. And he justified that. He didn't talk about the, the, the fact that there's a problem with the human condition. He didn't talk about the fact that we all deeply need a Savior, because he said, you know, Jesus met needs before touting creeds. I was reading the titles of some of his books, Way to the Good Life, Your Future is Your Friend, Move Ahead with Possibility Thinking, You Can Be the Person You Want to Be, Loud Boasts. He died in 2015. The headline of the New Yorker for his obituary was, Reverend Robert Schuller Dies 88, Built an Empire Preaching Self-Belief. Lofty speech, wise words. Paul says in Corinthians, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you but Christ Jesus and him crucified. Marked by lofty proclamations, but that are really nothing more than dry springs. Then Peter tells us that they entice unsteady souls. And that gives us a little glimpse into the sort of victim that these people were preying on. This is the sort of people these people were drawing in and enticing. Contrast the idea of an unsteady soul with chapter 1. And in verse 12, Peter's saying, I wonder, in fact, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
Peter wants these people to be established, and the idea of these unsteady souls is unestablished. Unestablished. These are new Christians. Peter says these are people who are barely escaping in the ESV, probably could be read as just escaping or just escaped. So these are people who are just new converts but are yet unestablished in the faith. And that makes them ripe for these false teachers to secretly bring in these destructive teachings and to lure them away with essential passions of the flesh. And the application for each of us personally is to stir us up to do what Peter wants to do for us, to stir us up. Peter was writing this letter to mature Christians. And he says, you know, I, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminders. Therefore, brothers, he says in chapter one, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fail. Peter sees the Christian life not just as a, a, a creed to be repeated or a set of facts to be believed, but it is a way of life to be lived. And as a way of life to be lived, it requires effort and action and dedication from us who are living it. And you can see all through the letter, he refers to the way, the way they've turned away Peter, Peter sees the Christian life as a way, and he wants us to continue growing. He wants us to add to our faith virtue, and so on, and so on. Keep moving forwards. Keep establishing ourselves in the truth of the gospel. And the application for us corporately as well as a church here, I think, is clear too. It's, it's for us to reflect as a church what is our approach to establishing new Christians, new converts in the faith? Fingers crossed. Maybe hoping that someone takes them under their wing, hoping that they come for a few Sunday services and pick things up. We must establish each other, but especially the new to the faith, we must establish them in the faith so they are able to see and reject the teachings and traps of someone like this. So, there we have a little bit about the false teachers. Eyes filled with adultery, hearts trained in greed, loud boasts, promising freedom, enticing unsteady souls. As we come to the close and to the close of the chapter, we get into these last few verses, really from verse 17 to the end. And Peter paints a pretty bleak picture once more about the future for these people. And, and there's a difficulty here for us, if we're honest. There's a difficulty here because Peter uses some strong language in referring to these false teachers, not in terms of their condemnation, but actually in terms of their faith. He tells us that these are people who have known the way and turned back from it. In fact, he says it would be better if they'd never known because the last, quoting the Lord, the last estate for them is worse than the first. He describes these false teachers in a, in a way that is problematic for us. So he says, first of all, he says they had escaped the defilements of the world. Second of all, he says they have had knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ 
And that's exactly the same way as he refers to the Christians he's writing to. And thirdly, he says he deny, they deny the Lord who bought them. And if we were looking at this chapter in isolation, you could come very close to concluding that these false teachers were redeemed Christians who committed the sin of apostasy, who willfully turned their back on the faith, and they have lost their salvation. But in our tradition of faith, we believe rightly that the whole of the Bible, the whole of Scripture, is not just a collection of random books, but it is one book, and it provides one counsel from God. So not only do we have to read these verses in the light of how they're written and when they were written, but we also have to read them in the light of the wider counsel of Scripture. And we know from the wider counsel of the Bible, from passages like Romans 8 and some of the things the Lord Jesus says in John 6, for instance, that, that those who are truly Christians can never and will never lose their salvation. And so we must conclude in the light of that that despite Peter's language here, these false teachers belong to a group of people who made a profession of faith who outwardly, perhaps for a long time, appear to be Christian in their lives, but who have never truly repented of their sin in their heart and never truly trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And, and at least one evidence that supports that from this passage, I think, is how Peter leaves us. He quotes us these two proverbs about the dog and the pig. And unlike in today's world, dogs were not beloved creatures in the ancient world. Dogs were, were wild and rabid and hated creatures. They were despised. And pigs equally, especially for people from a Jewish background, a pig was ceremonially unclean. They, they were disgusting animals. So we have two disgusting animals. And Peter says, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. What's his point? His point is this. Their nature never really changed. The pig was always a pig. The dog was always a dog. And just so it is with these people. Even though outwardly they may have appeared to be with you and it may have all looked good, by their fruit you will know them in the end of their lives. That's what Peter's saying here. The dog has returned to its vomit. These people were never truly believers. The Lord, in His ministry, uses an illustration about this. He, he, he tells a parable, a story about uh, the, the wheat and the tares, you'll read it, or, or uh, the wheat and the weeds in Matthew. Uh, and it's this picture of a farmer who sows his field of wheat, and then someone comes and sows other seeds amongst it, probably things called a darnel. And those things grow, and for most of their growing time, they look very like wheat. In fact, they're almost indistinguishable. And pulling them out, you would likely pull out a huge amount of wheat as well. And so the, the farmer in that parable says, leave them until harvest time, because at the very end, the difference becomes clear, and then they can be pulled up and burned. And that's very similar to the Christian church. Amongst all of the wheat there are darnels. And it is by perseverance to the end of their life that true Christians are recognized. That's the exhortation we get in Hebrews chapter 3, and I just wanted to read it to you for encouragement. Hebrews chapter 3, when the writer says, 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That brings us back, doesn't it, to Peter in chapter 1. Make your calling and election sure. Press on this way. Press on. Hold firmly to the holy commandment that was delivered to you. Press on in your life, and by your perseverance to the end, you make clear that you were truly a child of the living God. So that's a sobering message for us all tonight. We've seen the characteristics of false teachers. We've seen, ultimately, the certainty of their end. But we've also hopefully seen some of the things that would mark them out, and in so doing, made ourselves a little bit more prepared to identify them should they ever come across our path. Eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed, promising us freedom while themselves enslaved, despising authority, making these loud boasts and enticing unstable souls. There's a book written decades ago now called It Couldn't Happen Here, and it's set in the United States, and it, it's a, a novel, and it details a, a potential scenario in just around the time of the Second World War, it, 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 uh, the potential scenario for a fascist leader to arise in America and take over America, and essentially do in the United States what Hitler was doing or had just done in Germany. And the title of the book, of course, is what people say. Anytime someone brings up, do you think this is what's happening? They say, oh, it couldn't happen here. And it would be very easy for us and very foolish for us sitting here in the present to read a chapter like this and think, well, that's all very interesting, but it couldn't happen here. Now, we are very fortunate in this church in that we have godly elders who pray and agonize over the teaching and the care of this church, who hold it to account because they themselves are pastorally watching over us and our well-being. But Peter as well is challenging that each of us must be able to identify this sort of behavior were it ever to come across our path. Because as sobering as it is, if it comes, it will come from within. So that is the challenge for us. The glorious light comes in chapter 3 when Peter tells us that God is not slow to punish but he is waiting so that all could come to repentance. And the all there is people like this. God is hoping that all of those who have turned off the way will still find themselves back on it again, will still take hold again of the holy commandment delivered to them. And for each of us, the challenge is to press on the way of truth to stir up in ourselves what Peter is calling us to stir up, to make our calling and election sure. Let's pray. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still, 
praying as I onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And Lord, we would pray that each of us this evening. It is hard to read a passage like this and not be sobered by it. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that you have delivered to us. We thank you for the true message of freedom that you offer when you buy us, when you redeem us from the enslaving chains of sin. We thank you that you love us and that you care for us and that you tarry not because you have forgotten, but because your heart is that all should come to repentance. But Lord, we thank you as well that you are a God of justice, that the righteous will be redeemed and evil will be ultimately held to account. Lord, we pray especially for anyone here this evening who isn't a Christian, has come with a friend or, or, or just wandered in, that you would help them to reflect on the authority in their life, to ask themselves, who's their master? Who are they enslaved to? How free really are they? And Lord, we pray for each of us that you would, through these words of Peter, stir us up, stir us up in our lives to continue to grow and mature, to add to our faith virtue and virtue self-control and on and on and on, to grow and mature, Lord, to press on in the Christian way, that we would hold fast to the holy commandment delivered to us and so we would endure to the end and that someday when we meet you face to face, hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In your name, amen.